The passage underlying the sermon this morning comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And if you'd like to follow on, you can find it uh, on page 1030 of the Blue Pew Bible. Hear the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not, really, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the, sh- and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, Again, we pray that your spirit would attend us. Uh, This spirit who speaks in this word, uh, the spirit who was even brought before the hearers at Laodicea, Lord, by that same spirit that gives us this word, will you cause our hearts to embrace it, to believe it, and Lord, live it out in our lives. Uh, By your sovereign grace, we pray. Amen. There's a, the, the verse that we're talking about is verse 20, another of the famous passages in the history of the church. There's a famous painting of Christ at the door, picturing verse 20 by the artist Holman Hunt. Uh, it's entitled, The Light of the World. And in that picture, Christ has a crown and royal robes, and he's knocking on the door and he's looking at the camera so to speak and he's got a lamp in his left hand this was painted uh, in 1854 finished in 1854 and some of you may have seen that but you probably like me and grew up with another painting uh, that by Warner Salmon painted in the 1940s the same one who painted the head of Christ that they say has been sold 500 million copies with pens and cards and everything else. But the, uh, he also painted in the 40s uh, this uh, depiction of 320, and it's entitled, actually, Christ at the Heart's Door. And in this picture, 
the door frame and the light that emanates from Christ forms a heart to, to make explicit what he thinks Revelation 3.20 uh, means in terms of knocking at the door of the heart. So in keeping with the common interpretation of this passage and uh, the meaning of this uh, picture, I use this text over and over again in my early uh, witnessing. Uh, in fact, my whole approach for helping someone become a Christian involved this text. Whole everything boiled down to this final thing. Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? And even their assurance depended on that. Because I would ask after we pray, I said, well, so where is Jesus now? And if they didn't get it or didn't say the right answer, well, he's in my heart, then I would go back and say, now, he promised he'd come in your heart. You invited him. Yeah, yeah. So where is he now? I, I guess he's in my heart. Yeah, he's in your heart. You know, and that was... That was a lot of problems with that, okay? Uh, but one of which you could have a Jesus that you don't even know who is. You don't know who he is, what he did, but he's in there, and that's all that matters, okay? That was a common problem we dealt with. But another problem is that this uh, passage really doesn't mean that, and it's really not about that. And so we want to look more closely at this passage and see what its context is and what the real uh, meaning of it is, and, and what does this mean that Jesus is knocking at this door. Now, this, the, this is the last of seven letters that are the first part of uh, this grand uh, book of Revelation, and they're closely related to all the visions that follow. We can't go into all of that, but they uh, introduce, in a way, these visions that, that follow. But the letters are largely negative, that is, they don't take a, a good view of the church. The church is largely in not, not in a good condition. Uh, in, in Hebrew thinking, you emphasize things in the beginning and the end and in the middle. And the worst churches are placed at the beginning and the end. And then the seriously bad churches are placed in the middle to indicate this is the real issue I'm dealing with. And, and Laodicea is the worst of the churches in that, nothing, is good, nothing good is said about Laodicea. The other churches at least have some commendation. You know, you, I fault you for this, but I do commend you for that. No commendation in Laodicea. So as we come to this, it's, it's laid out just in the order, and I, I hope that you'll leave your Bibles open on page 1030 uh, so that we can uh, look real closely at the text. But... Uh, first, we'll just deal with Christ's self-description there in verse 14, uh, who I am, so to speak. And then the Laodiceans' condition, which is verses 15 through 17. And then Christ's provision. Uh, that is, and I'll look at that with his, the riches, the relationship, and the rule that he offers. So Christ's self-description, the Laodiceans' condition, than Christ's provision for that condition. Now, in Christ's, uh, dis this description that it begins with here, uh, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, these, in each case, each of the uh, letters to the churches begins with some description, and it's taken from the large description of Christ in the first chapter where John sees this vision of Christ. And so, depending on what he's dealing with in each church, a certain part of that vision is repeated 
to apply to that church in a particular way. So here he's called, uh, he calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 5, he, we have the phrase there, the faithful witness. This is just an expansion of that. The Amen, the uh, fa- uh, faithful and true witness. They're all talking about the same thing, which is Christ's faithful witness when he was on earth. A great cross-reference for this is 1 Timothy 6.13, where we have this phrase, Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Okay? So he's referring to his good confession. Christ confessed the truth about himself, the truth about God, and the truth about mankind's sin, and it cost him his life. He faithfully confessed the truth unto his own death. He was reliable and trustworthy. He would not compromise the truth, and he gave up his life because of that. That's what this means. And it's related. uh, Well, the word amen here, too, it's the same word that Jesus uses, for instance, uh, almost 25 times in John where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, introducing a, a critical statement. It's the same word, but only here and in Isaiah 65 is it used as a personal name. God calls himself in Isaiah 65, the Amen. Here Jesus calls himself the Amen. And it's a graphic way to say, I am truth itself. All I am and all I say is reliable and dependable. You want reality. You want the way it really is. I will always give it to you. And I proved it by giving up my life saying the truth. But then related to that is this phrase, the beginning of God's creation. Again, we need to compare text. But if you look back to chapter 1, verse 5, after he says faithful witness, he says the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. And this is a comparable phrase that means basically the same thing. So it's not talking about the original creation. It's talking about the new creation begun in Christ Jesus. You can see this also in Colossians 1.18 where the, the word beginning here and the word firstborn of creation are brought together as beginning and firstborn of creation. So it indicates that both of these phrases have to do with the new creation. And uh, this also, you see back there where it says that he's the uh, ruler of the kings on earth. Well, here it's described as the beginning of God's creation. So he's the ruler of the new creation and therefore the ruler of all things, including the kings of the earth, to bring his new creation to its final consummation, its final uh, apex uh, and summit. So together, this means that because of my faithful witness, I then became the beginning and the firstborn of all creation. 
You can see a little, uh, another aspect of this where he says in verse 21, I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I conquered by my faithful witness. I, com- I conquered by not compromising, by completely giving myself up to God. And I'm on that throne, and that throne means I'm the beginning of the creation of God, and I will bring it to its final conclusion. Here's the application, though, for us. Are you going to be a faithful witness and prove that you are a part of the new creation? Are you and I and me, are we going to be faithful witnesses and prove that we as well are a part of the new creation, and we as well will sit down on his throne because we conquer, as it says in verse 21. And the issue with the Laodiceans is that they were compromising terribly in their idolatry. And they were, at this point, not exhibiting the signs that they were part of this new creation, that they belonged to Jesus and really loved Jesus because of their terrible idolatry and compromise. So this is then uh, the self-description of Christ. Then he deals with their own condition, right? The Laodiceans' condition. Now, here is, I think, a common misinterpretation, one that I've held for several years. And the idea is that when Jesus says, you're neither cold nor hot, I wish that you were lukewarm. I mean, uh, I wish you were cold or hot and not lukewarm. And it's taken to mean, I wish you were zealous for me or completely cold to me. But because you're here in the middle, I want to just spew you out of my mouth. Now, one of the problems with that is that it's very difficult to think of Christ saying, I wish you were utterly cold to me. Because every time Christ, God expresses these things, he he says, I want you to be. I want you to be something you should be. And as several commentators point out, this is likely, uh, the the background to this is that a nearby uh, city of Hariopolis had hot springs, and they were thought to be medicinal and and healing springs. And then also Colossae had wonderful uh, cold streams that were refreshing and known for, boy, you get great water. You know, some places you live in the country even, you think, man, there's really good water here, or you taste the water somewhere and you think, this is bad water. Well, Laodicea had bad water. Uh, The water they got if, if they did get it from Heriopolis, it was lukewarm by the time they got there. When they tried to get it out of the river, it was uh, sandy and muddy and tasteless, and it was terrible. So the point he is making is this. I wish that you were fruitful, even and useful, in either having hot springs or cold, because both of those are useful and desirable. What you are is sickening. What you've become is nauseous. And in judgment, if you continue this way, in judgment, you will be vomited out of my mouth if you stay this way. Then we go to the next verses to find out, well, what is this condition that made him nauseous? What is this condition that was not fruitful 
uh, and helpful, either hot or cold, but useless and worthless because, as he says, it was lukewarm. And the very likely meaning is that they had compromised in their idolatry and they were not showing forth a faithful witness. The idea of witness is common in all the other letters, and so we should expect that it will be so here as well. And the emphasis also, we think this, because the very beginning description of himself is the faithful and true witness, which sets the tone for this is going to be about your witness Because I'm the faithful witness, and I'm coming to you as the faithful witness to speak to you uh, about this. And so some of the background of this would be like Matthew 10, 32. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And even in 1 John, the same author says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which is already here. Now, how were they compromising their witness? It's indicated by the fact that they would say, verse 17, that I am rich. This word rich always has a negative meaning in Revelation, and it always stands for unbelievers who are sold out to idolatry. And because they've sold out to idolatry, they've become a part of a system in which they have been enriched, okay? It's it's assuming that to participate in this idolatry was necessary, and if you compromise, then you will be shut out. Now, the situation, as we know, in these cities was that if you did not belong to the local guild of, uh, of workers that had its particular deities or deity that they uh, had allegiance to, and you didn't join them in the worship of this deity, then you would be shut out economically. This is part of the background to some other of the other letters. And so the indication is that these people have compromised and that they have become wealthy, and then because of their wealth, they think that they're okay spiritually as well. Now, another background of this is Hosea 12. And listen to what the, uh, Hosea says to them. Um, you, you are a merchant in whose hands are false balances, Balances. He loves to oppress, so it's talking about lying and oppression. But yet, Ephraim has said, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. You see, they were idolatrous, but because they were prosperous, they thought it was okay that they were idolatrous. We're good. Look, there's obvious blessing. It must be okay to have this compromise because everything's turning out a lot better. Easy for us to begin to compromise the truth and integrity in the workplace in order to get ahead. But God would say, in so much as you do that, your your, your witness is completely worthless. You're not hot or cold. You're nauseous that before men you would sell me out.
for your own wealth, to get ahead. That is idolatry to the core. And so the term later, as he says in verse 18, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness, this is also an Old Testament term for idolatry. In Ezekiel twenty three twenty nine, the very graphic phrase, to cover the nakedness of your whoring or your harlotry. One of several places in the Old Testament where nakedness is associated with the compromised idolatry that causes you, with the metaphor, to lay down with other idols, you see. To commit adultery with other idols. To become naked with other idols. Therefore, the shame of your nakedness must be covered. That's the background to this phrase. And so they must have, the Laodiceans must have the shame of their nakedness, of their idolatry, of their compromise to get ahead in this world. Covered. And as Caird has said, the church has failed, this church has failed to find in Christ the source of all true wealth, splendor, and vision. You see, if Christ is your treasure, if he's that which you value above everything else, and you would lose anything and everything for him, then you're not going to ultimately compromise. But they don't see him as that source of wealth and splendor and vision. And this is why we must be guarded so much against it. As we have just sung on page 7 of the bulletin, when temptation sorely presses in the day of Satan's power in our times of deep distresses in each dark and trying hour, and then when the world around is smiling in the time of wealth and ease, earthly joys are hearts beguiling in the day of health and peace. By thy mercy, O deliver us, good Lord. It's not only in time of distress, it's in time of wealth, in time where there's so much opportunity for compromise, so much opportunity for your heart to want so many other things than Jesus Christ. And so we need God's mercy to deliver us from this. And it's interesting how... Uh, in, in Matthew 5, that Jesus talks about persecution in verses 12 and 13 there, 11 through 13. And then juxtaposed right with persecution and suffering is you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Show forth your good deeds that they may see them and glorify your Father. So the idea of witnessing is not just chattering to everything that moves, you know, tell them about Jesus. That's, you know, at the right time and in the right way, befriending people and having a relationship and a friendship and talking about it as God provides opportunity. Yes. But that passage is interesting because it says 
it, it talks about being willing to be persecuted by the way you live out the love of God in this world, being the light and salt of the earth and showing forth your good deeds, you see. It's goodness. It's living out the goodness of, of Christ in the midst of persecution, And you see, being unwilling to be persecuted, unwilling to lose, then we've compromised the whole opportunity to live out that goodness and that holiness. We've displayed Christ is worthless. Christ is worthless. Don't give your life to him. Don't sell out for Jesus. Don't count him as more valuable than anything else. We've just said with our life, no, he's worthless. That makes Jesus sick. That makes him nauseous. But the real, now we've seen some of his self-description, something of the condition of the Laodiceans, that though they think they're something because they have some wealth, he says, you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And isn't it interesting that the problem they have is not Helplessness. I mean, it is helplessness or not having a sense of helplessness before God. I counsel you. That's a word of love, unexpected really in this passage because you would think he would be saying, I, I, I want to completely get rid of you. By saying, I want to spew you or I will spew you out of my mouth, I will vomit you out, you'd think he's just done with them, but he's not. I counsel you. This is a, a gentle term. Come to me, you see. Buy from me gold. Buy from me garments. Buy from me uh, eye salve. This may have some background to this was a place that produced excellent garments. It may have to do with the locale here as well. In the local area, there was an eye salve. And so this may be some of the background here. But the point is that I will give you all that you need uh, for salvation. In me, you will be genuinely rich with gold that is refined and pure. And your nakedness will be covered. This nakedness that is a sign of symbol and humiliation and shame. I will cover you with white garments of righteousness. And obviously, they are poor. What are they going to buy it with? And in, you were made to think of Isaiah 55, where, and this really may be the background of this, where uh, Isaiah says, or God says, come to the waters, come by and eat without money, uh, without anything. And so we come to him helpless and broken to receive from him what we cannot supply ourselves. But here's the real problem is we don't see our need. The problem with people compromising is that they don't see their desperate need of Christ. And so he's not the treasure, the most valuable person, the most valuable thing in their lives. He's not priceless to them because they don't see, they're not aware of their own sinfulness. They're not aware of their own darkness of heart. uh, And they think of themselves as spiritually uh, wealthy. And so in this He's basically saying, repeating, putting in a way what Top Lady said, and uh, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Come as you are, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and get from me what you don't have. 
get from me what you cannot purchase on your own, what you cannot get on your own. And to bring our works to him is to purchase nothing, you know, to, to, to say, I'm going to try to offer some goodness that I have. He's not calling to them about their goodness, right? Bring to me your righteousness. Bring to me the accomplishment that you have. I mean, these people were wretched in every way. But isn't it wonderful that he's not saying, leave? He's saying, come. Come to these very people that he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Why would he declare that judgment? All the more so that they might come. That they might receive the riches that he wants to freely give them in himself. Righteousness and change and humility and love. All that they need. And forgiveness in Christ. And a covering where they don't have any covering. And of course, this is where verse 20 comes in. I stand at the door and knock. And the background to this is Luke 12, where we read this concerning Christ's last coming. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And then he says he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. So there's that idea of table fellowship with even Christ serving us in the eternal kingdom. Now, this idea is repeated several times in the New Testament about Christ at the door at the end. But what's interesting about this is that he takes that image from the, the, the future coming and says, I'm here now. I want to bring that vision of my coming now because it's important that you deal with this now in your life. That you receive me now. The idea is the Lord wants to find his children in these passages ready to receive him when he comes. And with those who open the door at his call, he will enter into the most intimate fellowship. That's the picture of that final day, ready and eager, given up to him, no matter what we've lost. And he says, you're not in that condition now. I'm standing here now, knocking at the door. And so, to open the door is the joyful response of the church. Not only to this last call of Christ, but this last call has come into the present so that we are to respond even now to him. And this, this analogy indicates that the house is Christ's house. He is coming as master and he is inviting us to awake, to receive him and then to eat with him. It's the most gorgeous thing that this one who is on the throne, who is the victor, who's the Lord of creation, is now coming to embrace us and and coming to invite us to be his and to have intimacy with us. Another background is the Song of Solomon, where we read the voice of my beloved. He's knocking at the door. Open to me, my love. What a background. 
that he could say, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, but I'm not going to say leave. I'm saying come. And I'm even coming to you saying, open the door, my love. Open the door, my love. And as proof that he is that Christ, he has laid down his life for us. That's the backdrop to this offer. I'm the one who conquered and laid down my life for you to die in your place and bear your sin. And so he invites us to begin now what will be the eternal fellowship of communion. And it's interesting that in the uh, upper room at the Last Supper, We read this in Luke 22. The the juxtaposition of the table fellowship and rule, which we have here, right? It's this table fellowship, and then immediately you'll sit with me on a throne. Listen to this in Luke 22. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. This is a preview of what will happen. And sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And, of course, that promise becomes the promise to the whole of his people. And so we amazingly, the the people that are addressed as idolatrous and nauseous are said, but if you will receive me, if you will open the door and joyfully embrace me and submit to all the riches that I want to bring into your life that you do not have, I will share my throne with you. How can that be? (laughs) How can this Christ, for people who've compromised and not confessed him and said you're worthless before other people, how can that Christ still value us and say, open my beloved, I will let you share my throne And, of course, it ends here. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is quoted in Isaiah 6, or said in Isaiah 6. It's quoted at the giving of the parables. And the idea is that these parables and these words may harden many, as the parables did. But if you have eyes, if you have ears to hear, hear this. Hear it. And respond and embrace me. By God's grace, do you have ears to hear? It's God giving you that grace to hear him and give yourself to Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we stand in awe of a Christ who would offer all the riches that you have, your your gold, your dress, your eye salve, so that we will be enriched so that we will be clothed with forgiveness and acceptance and favor and righteousness so that we will have a new vision of life and a new vision of what is important and what is not. Oh, Lord, we thank you as well that you want to come into us and you want to have the most intimate fellowship with us even to the point of sharing with us your throne so that Your throne becomes our throne. Oh, Lord, how could we be brought to such an exalted condition? No more higher, 
dignity could be given us. We, even who compromised our confession, oh Lord, give us grace that no matter what our sin, that we will leave our sin, that we will turn our backs upon it, even though we can't do that perfectly, that in principle we will turn away and renew ourselves with this great Lord Jesus who has sacrificed for us. Amen.